July 13, 2014, uh, lecture discussion number 160 on the uh, book of Romans. And for the sake of the um, vast Internet audience, I should mention that uh, we here at uh, Cliffside Ground Zero have been in a uh, intermediate suspended state. Uh, we've been awaiting the all-clear pronouncement uh, from the structural engineer as to the occupancy permit for the building that we're hiding in. And so far, they have not issued any sort uh, of such an edict, to my knowledge. I have not been informed as to the integrity of the building. I think that's intentional on their part. Uh, my concerns are not being considered. They're hiding from me as I hide from them. Which leads to the most obvious of the obvious questions. Why then are we going forward and restarting the lecture series in this building? As I look at it, the scaffolding extends, uh, what is that, one, two, three, four, five, six runs of, of eight-foot scaffolding. So we got 40-foot of scaffolding in here. And we're counting on that scaffolding to hold the building up in the event of any kind of pressure. So why uh, are we doing it? Well, we're doing it because of uh, you folks on the Internet, the relentless pressure that I get from the aforementioned vast Internet audience. And, and they're unanimous, by the way, in their uh, uh, unconcern for our safety. <laughs> Actually, mathematically, it's, it's likely that two or three are concerned, but uh, I have not heard from them and they are yet to be identified. In any event, we're going forth once again, um, just for everybody's sake, we're risking our very lives to bring another lecture to the Internet ether here. And I'm very well aware of that. The rest of us would like to go fishing. I have some friends that uh, uh, aren't here today, obviously. Uh, they're fishing. They caught 300 salmon the other day out of a set net operation in about four hours. So... Everyone would rather be doing that. But here we are, Internet folks, as I said, risking our lives for your sake. I should preemptively add that my reference to Cliffside Ground Zero, that's going to cause people to write me and they're going to mail me thinking that they have thought of it before us. So I'm preempting that and we will be forever now labeled as Cliffside Zeroers. So be prepared for that. And I've already contacted the T-shirt people and uh, that'll be forthcoming. Anyway, before returning to the subject of Jacob, uh, Moses, and Joshua and their experiences with the angel of God, again, the three of those men are joined together forever in eternity, frankly, but certainly in Scripture, because the three of them had this meeting with God himself, the angel of God, which is uh, God himself in the flesh, which is Jesus Christ, as you know. All three of them had a physical confrontation in the sense that Christ came and intervened, uh, for lack of a better term. I don't have terms to describe what he's doing that are accurate, so I just use the best I can. With Jacob, it was at Genesis 32, 22 through 32. Um, at, with Moses, it's at Exodus 4, 21 through 26. And now we have Joshua at Joshua 5, 13 through 15. And if you remember, I know it's been a few weeks, we have this sudden appearance of Christ in all three cases, for lack of a better description. He comes suddenly as if it doesn't fit the text, but it absolutely fits the text. 
It just doesn't seem like it to us until we begin to evaluate it. So here God comes. Jesus Christ, God, Jesus, God, comes in a manner to each of these men that seems almost combative. Certainly he places himself between Jacob, Moses, and Joshua and their destination. He inhibits their progress, if you will. He stops them from what they're about to do. And with Jacob, God wounds him. And after that event, Jacob walks thereafter with a limp. So why does he limp? What is the point of the wounding of Israel? Because he changes his name to Israel. So I have a confrontation between Christ and Jacob, and after which Jacob is wounded or limps. With Moses, it's, it's elevated even beyond that. Christ seeks to kill Moses. It says so, Exodus 4.24. So God comes to kill Moses, who he is sending to rescue Israel. Again, why does Jacob limp? Why is Moses under a threat of death from God? And then ask, is it the same why, if that makes sense? Does that make sense to you? In other words, I'm asking you, is the reason for the limp and the reason for seeking the death of Moses the same reason? So immediately we're going to have to compare those two great mysteries and we're in the process of doing that. What is the meaning of Jacob's limp? Why did it happen? And what is the meaning of Moses' impending death? And Moses' is a little bit more clear, straightforward because we have Zipporah and circumcision and we've covered that quite a few times. Whenever you see the word circumcision, tell yourself this has something to do with the crucifixion or the blood of Christ, for uh, uh, for a simple way of approaching it. But in any event, we have to solve those and compare those two mysteries, the mystery of the death, impending death of Moses and the uh, wounding or the limp of Jacob. And now, at Joshua 5.13, God is doing a very similar thing. This time, he is standing opposite of Joshua with his sword drawn, and he is interfering in Joshua's um, ability to go forward, and I submit that this is very much the same as Moses' experience. And, and Joshua interprets it uh, immediately. Are you, have you come to kill me, or have you come to kill my enemies? So uh, Joshua immediately accepts that this is a possible um, a violent account. And Joshua 1.5, as you know, I hope you know, uh, God promises Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So he's saying to him, you will have experiences that Moses has had. And that makes sense because they're both types of Christ. It's a very complex verse, as you should expect, but you can see that Joshua would follow the patterns of Moses. But point is that all three of these men came face to face with God and, they, and something happened. All three of them came face to face. So I have three essentially face to faces, as I call them, face to faces. And here's the key to all of it. And all of them lived. So face to faces lived. And Jacob even utters those words in Genesis thirty-two twenty: For I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. So, what's the opposite of face-to-face and lived? Face-to-face and die. Apparently, if you come face-to-face with God, 
what are you in danger of? Death. Why? It didn't happen in these three cases. Three came face to face. Not only did they come face to face, they had a physical confrontation with God and they all lived. And that makes them very important in the Bible and very important uh, for us to understand. But before we return to Joshua 6, that's where we left off. And then, the, as I said, the eventual combining of the three face-to-faces, uh, I should have uh, mentioned some stuff that has accumulated in the two weeks that we've been hiding. Things that bear notice. You should be following the news, right? What's happening? Let's just take the Middle East. Russia is doing what now? They're moving into Babylon. Or if you prefer, Iraq. But pay attention, it's Babylon. Russia is moving, not necessarily heavy troops or forces, but they are supporting Iran. And they are supporting them with military technologies and military capabilities. And I... I am going to submit to you that's going to escalate. Russia sees an opportunity here. They are very, very close to the Iranians. They supply them with nuclear technology. What is the point of the nuclear technology as far as Iran is concerned? What does Iran want to do with the nuclear technology? Yeah, they're going to use it to uh, destroy Israel. That's what they're going to do. And as soon as they do that, then they become the most powerful Islamic country in the world. And that's their other uh, goal. And that's one of the reasons the Saudis, besides the Shiite and the Sunni issue, that's one of the reasons the Saudis are very concerned about the nuclear capability of the Iranian country. But that's Persia. So here we have Russia moving into Babylon or Iraq. Uh, and their intention is to provide whatever assistance necessary to Persia slash Iran. And Al-Qaeda has seized a large portion of Babylon. If you know a very radicalized Al-Qaeda, uh, they've uh, also seized a large portion of Iraq. And they're openly... Whoa. Did you mute that? Okay, thank you. I'll just kill it. It's probably me bouncing up and down on the stage. Oh, it could be that the terithathy is about to be electrocuted by the water infiltration on top of the electronic system. Now you know why we came here and moved the very expensive system and buried it underneath all those tarps. Uh, but Russia is moving into uh, Babylon, as I said. They intend to help Persia, Iran deal with this Al-Qaeda army that is coming and seizing all this property, and that Al-Qaeda radicalized, is. If that, there's a couple of words for you, radicalized Al-Qaeda. I mean, that seems like a redundancy, but we have, we have even worse than what we're, uh, an Islamic terrorist organization than what was uh, responsible for the recent attack on this country. So these are some very, very bad folks, and they are intending to form a caliphate, and they're starting in Babylon. And they're demanding, by the way, that all the Islamic nations submit to their caliphate if they're able to, uh, in fact, install one. And plus, now I have the Syrian rebels that are attempting to depose and kill Assad. 
and they are indistinguishable from the terrorists that are, are controlling most of Iraq now. So there is no difference between the Syrian uprising and the Al-Qaeda that is seizing Babylon. They are the same group. And so I have this very large group. And in between, I have Syria and Iran, Turkey, and I have Russia interfering. It, by the way, Syria has an ally in the world. The ally to Syria is who? Russia. Iran has an ally in the world. They actually have more than one. The Chinese are also helping them. But Russia is the primary ally to Iran. So you begin to see Russia developing a tremendous amount of influence and power in the Middle East. And on the other side is this uh, caliphate organization that are trying to do what they're trying to do. And so here's this group that is uh, attempting to kill Assad and take over Syria, attempting to uh, kill al-Maliki and take over uh, Iraq. And they're being opposed by Iran, uh, Assad, and the Russians. But as they're going uh, with the group in Syria, they're capturing weaponry. They're, they're getting into the banking system. They're stealing uh, all the economic assets, and they're sharing them with the uh, uh, Syrian rebels. And they've also got what else? What else have they captured if you've been watching the news? They've, they've got weapons of mass destruction, primarily chemical and biological elements. And they're sharing those with the rebels. So we have the most radicalized Islamic terrorists we can find who now have a weapons-grade uranium. And probably at this time, or very shortly, they will have biological and chemical agents. And Assad has them too, as you know. He used them on the Syrian rebels. So I have Assad who has used these weapons already on the Syrian rebels. And what do you think the Syrian rebels are going to do when they now have control of their own weaponry? So we're going to start to see biological and chemical agents lobbed at one another in the Middle East. It's going to be a fascinating event. The people that want to establish a caliphate... Uh, are ideologically driven to a level that we can't even recognize. We haven't seen this kind of ideology in hundreds of years. By the way, I wonder where Assad got those chemical weapons. No one ever seems to ask, where did he get them? Did the Russians give them to him? It's possible. It's more likely he got them from somebody else who is no longer with us. Because that's where the Al-Qaeda group is getting them. Anyway, Russia is allied with Assad and allied with Iran. And Al-Qaeda is, is allied with the Syrian rebels. And so to recap, I have Russia, Iran, and Syria moving in concert. Or if you prefer now, I'm going to use this language for you. I have Rosh, Magog, Persia, and Syria. Now what am I talking about now? That is right out of... Ezekiel 28. That becomes very important to you. And all of these groups, both groups have an interest in to control Babylon. And Babylon is an extraordinary element of prophecy in Scripture. And obviously I find it to be interesting that this confederacy of Ezekiel 38 is forming Russia, Iran, or Persia, if you will. And Syria, Magog and Syria, Magog and Persia. 
Now, recently, a military expert, I was listening to him, he asserted that Turkey would never accept the caliphate unless it originates in Turkey, and nor would the Assyrians. So I have Turkey to deal with now, but I also have the Kurds, the Assyrians. So watch for Tubal and Assyria. They become very significant. Turkey is the lower part of the uh, Magog um, in the sense they, they are part of Magog in Scripture. But they are the southern part where Turkey is located. And um, so pay attention to this because what's the purpose? Why does God like his prophecy? What does he do with it? He's using it. People ask me all the time, why all this prophecy in the Bible? What is the purpose of it? Talk to me. What is the purpose of prophecy? Yeah, somebody said, so we know what's going to happen. Why is that valuable to us? That's absolutely right. Perfectly said. The purpose of Scripture is to authenticate the truth of the Bible. He uses it to authenticate truth. He also proves something at the same time. Not only is the Bible true, therefore all of the Bible is true. Absolutely correct. But I also do something that else with uh, prophecy. I prove something that is very important. I prove that whoever wrote this prophecy that is thousands of years old has to have a characteristic. What characteristic is that? That he can see things that happen in different times. And the Bible is filled with proof that whoever wrote it is the creator of time. So if you are the creator of time, how much power do you have? And that's why it's imp- and that's why you hear me. And this is a this is where I, I wrote this sentence. This would be a good time. Thank you for pretending to laugh. Um, and actually, there's never a good time for these sorts of things. But scientists, our our scientific community, they have recently come forth as well. It just so happens that at the Time I have this prophecy going off, I have scientists talking about something. They have said and declared that there is no now. Have you watched that? Have you listened to that? There is no now. And by the way, that's something that Everyone already knows and has known for thousands of years, but the scientists nonetheless uh, declare it to be so, as if it's a new concept. And essentially, they, and I'll call them the they, they're the gatekeepers of what can be called science. They've decided that now is the time to say that there is no now. I'm always interested as to why you would bring this subject up. There's a reason. It's not happenstance, by the way. We have a complicit media, and it floods um, the appropriate outlets with this latest supposed deep thought, much to the delight of their uh, sycophants who dutifully applaud and swoon as they're trying to do. And, and obviously, those of us who are skeptical of the gatekeeping and the gatekeepers, we're going to naturally ask, why are you bringing this up now? Why, and Ed, thank you for laughing. Why is now the time to say there is no now? And I have a habit, as you know, of casting aside all these coincidental explanations. In other words, I'm suspicious 
of those who insist that, oh, it's just a coincidence. I just thought of it at the same time you thought of it, and it all went throughout the entire media all at the same time. How coincidental. And if you've been awake at all in the last 20 years, you have witnessed that the entire media relentlessly pounds the exact same talking point phrase over and over and over again. One of the good things about the Internet and um, is that it's beginning to expose our media for each one says the same exact words over and over and over again, pretending that they originated it. Uh, it's a manipulative technique came out of uh, Nazi Germany, as a matter of fact. It's Goebbels. Just keep beating the thing in and saying it and get everybody to say it and produce almost this this monolithic uh, uh, mob mentality. The point of it is to get everybody to uh, repeat it as if it is true. So on the heels of academica, academia also recently saying this. They have, they have coupled these two together. They said that there is no now. And what is the other thing they say there is none of? Do you remember? They say there is no free will. Those are the two things that now are coupled together. So ask why. On the heels of the no free will comes there is no now. They say, so they're companions. This is their latest release. The, the companion to free will is an illusion, is apparently that time is directional, which is duh. Time is directional. That's how I would draw time. It's an arrow, if you will. Time flows in one direction. That's why they call it the arrow of time. And no one can go back because it keeps flowing. It's like a conveyor belt. You can't back up. And what they're saying is that there is no now, or that essentially it's the same as there is no one lives in the present, which is another way of saying that time is only future. You only have a future. I ask many, many, uh, I've repeated it often, how, how quick is the present? What length is your present? If you have a present, how long is it? And very quickly you see that the present is, uh, is in the past, right? So that's what there is no now means. How long is now? What is required to be in present, in the present, the now? And obviously, they're saying that no one is in the present. Do you see that? There is no now for anyone. There is only time, and we are all subject to time. But the Bible says something profoundly different. When Jesus Christ says, I am the I am, he is using the present tense, and he is saying that he is always in the now. And so he is saying that he is unaffected by time and not subject by time. That is what the name of God means. That is what the I am means. That is the point of Exodus 3:14 through 15. When at the burning bush, Moses says, what is your name? He says, I am not subject to time. And I am not inside of time. Therefore, I am always in the now and I am the creator of time. 
and I have authority over time. And he proves it by giving you, as an example, Ezekiel 28. 38. Did I say 28? Let me correct that. 38. God's name, Jesus Christ's name, Jesus Christ says over and over and over again that I am. John 8.24 and 8.58, two of the most prominent, but all through John. Always, always keep in mind when reading Scripture that Christ is not subject to time. If you ever have a view that says, oh, he doesn't know what's going to happen next, he can't help but know what's happening next. He's the creator of time. He is always in the now. And then when scientists and philosophers begin to discuss the properties of time, and that's why it's so important. This is why it's important to know the, the, the effect of velocity on uh, time, because I hope you know that time does not move at a constant speed. That's why I try to tell you these things, so you recognize when society, especially when academia, begins to tell you things that are so contrary to Scripture. Time does not move at a constant speed. Uh, Let me just repeat that really fast. If I put an atomic clock in an airplane, So I have an atomic clock in my airplane here. And I have another one. Well, that's really badly done. I put another atomic clock. This is a famous experiment. I have another atomic clock on Earth. And I fly that plane at a 1,000 miles an hour. This clock will run at a different time than that clock. The clock at rest versus the clock at movement. Time is relativistic, dependent on the velocity of its system. This system is a plane flying at a thousand miles an hour. This system is a clock sitting stationary in Earth. But the Earth is not stationary, is it? It's on the spiral arm of the Milky Way galaxy and it is moving, it is, it is moving through the universe. And the Earth is orbiting the sun. I have all of those, all that motion. But I can prove to you with just atomic uh, clock systems that uh, time is dependent on, a, on velocity of its system. So time has a direction. That's true. Time has a direction. For us, it seems like it's only one direction. But time And time appears to us to be directed, but time does not have a direction for Christ. Not for God. So the, the, the statement, there is no now, when they start saying there is no now and there is no free will, this is an attack on the goodness of God. This is an attack on the existence of God. That's the point of the statement. Both have this commonality that the only reality is the physical reality, a godless, creationless reality, which is why they keep saying it. And that's why I keep returning to these kind of subjects and gravitational phenomenon and time and relativistic uh, time uh, versus the velocity of its system and absolute observation because Christ says, listen, I am the absolute observer of all things. He says, I'm omniscient. He proves it. Intelligent observation, the observer effect. George Berkeley's perception and reality. That's why I keep returning to them because they're They're so important as you go through this world. It's doing everything it can to destroy the Bible, especially now. 
So, anyway, always read Scripture knowing that Jesus Christ is omniscient, omnipresent, the absolute observer. He sees all things at once, all things at once, at all time. He, by himself, is alone in the now. God is in the now and has to be in the now. There is a now, it's just God is the one in it. And understanding the characteristics of time uh, becomes very important. So that's why we do it. And again, prophecy is proof. So what we're witnessing in Ezekiel 38 right now with Persia and Russia and Assyria and Babylon, um, that, uh, that demonstrates that whoever wrote that completely outside of time. And he got it. How's he doing, by the way? He's, it's absolutely coming to bear, into focus, item by item, and every one of them perfectly in order in our lifetime. We are seeing Ezekiel 38 on TV. I mean, it's amazing. And eventually it becomes so overwhelming and keeps building. It's an exciting time. It's very hard to be discouraged when you see a prophecy written thousands of years ago being perfectly fulfilled. Whoever wrote that prophecy was outside of time. Okay, now on to Joshua 2 and Joshua 6 where we left off. I just wanted to get that in there. um, Mostly because I get a lot of internet questions and it seemed like a good time to fire at. So I did. I hope they're happy. Are they happy? No, they're not. So let's see if we can figure out what's going on in Joshua 6. This is an amazing uh, thing, very hard to understand, as always. uh, We're going to get a run at it. So we're going to start out. I'm going to mix Joshua 2 and Joshua 6 up. So open up to Joshua 6, uh, verse 16, and let's uh, see what we got. Ah, Take some medicine. And the seventh time it happened. So we're talking about the military conflict at Jericho. And God has a plan here. And they're going to walk around. And we'll cover this more in detail in the coming weeks. But for right now, just understand that they have trumpets. And they have no ability to take these huge walls. We talked about how high these walls had to be. These are massive walls. They could be as much as 100 feet high. They're at minimum probably 40 to 50 feet high, that makes them, could be as much as 20 foot thick. And Joshua has a bunch of young guys and no catapult systems, no ramming systems, no tower systems, no siege capability. He doesn't have any mana now. So he's dealing with this, what seemingly is an impenetrable fortress and, uh, and God's plan is to walk around it and blow horns. Okay, so that's what we're up against here. Let's start with that. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be dedicated by the Lord to destruction. So uh, this is where the King James gets a lot of things perfect, and a lot of Bibles do not. And it shall... To destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live. 
she and all who are with her in her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. That's a word nobody notices very often, so I'll repeat it. Because we're going to let Rahab live because she hid the messengers. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed thing, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed thing. Now, your Bible might have that pluralized. Let's understand that there's a, I read it the way I think is the most accurate, singular. And make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. And that the people shouted with a great shout that the walls fell down flat. Now, two weeks ago, I asked which direction did they fall? In or out? They fall in. How's how? I got a hundred foot. Well, let's say I'm right. Seed me the hypothesis of the premise. I got fifty to a hundred foot walls, twenty foot thick, and they fall in. How's it going for the city? Not so good. They fall out. Well, it's like turning lights on cockroaches. You can't. You're not getting anywhere, are you? They're going to be gone. So the likelihood that they fell in is pretty high, I would think. Plus, I understand trumpeting. I play the trumpet, and whenever I play it, it seems to drive people away from me. So I'm assuming that it pushed the walls away. Uh, one of you people out in the uh, in the internet, if you would like to send my trumpet teacher a message telling him that I'm not doing well enough at trumpeting, that he needs to step up his game. I would appreciate it so I could take it to him in the foreseeable future. So he knows that he has accountability all over the world. I just mentioned that in the hope that uh, somebody from Australia would take a shot at him. Because he's, he's tearing me up. Anyway, so the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpet. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. And the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. Okay? So, I want you to notice the final instructions. He gives them final instructions. He's saying, okay, here's what we're going to do when that trumpet goes off on that seventh uh, uh, day. We're going we're gonna to shout. Uh, and the city is going to be doomed, if you will. It's going to fall. And I want you to take care of Rahab. So Rahab, Rahab the harlot. We gotta take care of Rahab. She lives. Same for all her family. All of her household. And she, she lives because why? 
Why does she live? What's it say? Because she hid the messengers. And let me go over that again. If you were going to describe, if I ask you, who is it that Rahab hid? Bible test, what would you say? She hid the messengers. She didn't hide the spies. She didn't hide two soldiers that were searching. She hid the messengers. What's the obvious question? If they're messengers, what do we got to know now? What's that? I can barely hear you, Terry. You're hiding in the dark in the rain back there. Go ahead, yell it out. What's the message? Absolutely right. They're messengers. What's the message? What's the next question? Because they're going, they've got a message, and she hides them. What message did they carry? Who were they supposed to give it to? Obviously, they gave it to Rahab. But who gets the message? Who's the message for? Did anybody else get the message? That's something you'll ask your teenage children the rest of your lives, or at least as long as they're teenagers. You getting the message? Who gets the message? Anybody else get it? Why is he sending a message? Who's sending the message? These guys have got a message. Okay, so that's what we've got to figure out. Now, and note that there's this, there's this accursed thing, right? It's an accursed thing. Also, the word can mean dedicated thing or sanctified thing. Um, God's thing is even on the list there. A very strong possibility. It belongs to God. Don't take the accursed thing. By all means, don't take the accursed thing, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed thing. And Israel is troubled. You make Israel accursed. Don't touch this thing. What is it? How did it get into Jericho? So we got to figure out, and it's important that we do, what it, what it is and, and why it is that they should not take it. Now, there are a bunch of views. Some, as I'm saying, will say it's things. And you can tell which way I'm leaning. I'm saying that it is singular. The people shouted. What's the obvious question there? Covered that a couple weeks ago. They shouted. What they go? What they do? They said something. What did he have them shout? What was it? And they shouted it before the wall fell. They don't shout it afterwards. They shout it before. Now, for those who think I never answer any questions ever, I will give you a, a, what many believe. and You can decide whether or not it's an acceptable answer. Many believe that it is a statement of faith that the walls would fall. We believe the wall will fall, and the wall falls. 
So it is said before the wall falls, which requires what? Not said after. It's real easy to say, we believe the wall will fall when the wall is falling. They had to say it before. So it's a statement of belief that the wall would fall, which is a statement or a shout of faith. Regardless, if that if that's the position, and we'll get into it, as I said, in a couple of weeks, I think you would recognize that God is asking that that shout occur before the collapse, and we need to understand why and what it was that they shouted. Certainly, it was attached to the trumpets, and the timing of the shout is critical. And And then there's this other element here, this utter destruction. And that's very puzzling, even troubling for people. They cannot understand. I had a conversation um, this morning with a young woman that wanted to talk to me about the death of innocence. Um, mostly children, but could not understand why uh, God would allow uh, children to, uh, to uh, be subject to physical death. And that's a very difficult subject for people. Why does a good God allow innocent children to die? What's that? Well, we're in a death system. There's no question about that. Um, And again, what God does is fix it. Uh, You really have to understand that that's why it's so important to, uh, to study things like quantum physics. Because when you do... You recognize what the physical reality actually is. It is not you. You are a spiritual being. Uh, and that spiritual being cannot perish. It cannot cease to exist. At some point, he reestablishes the physical with the spiritual. And he solves it. He corrects it. He reconciles and he redeems. That's what he does. He's good. But we are in a sinful world that has death as the central element of it, and we can't escape it, and, and therefore it happens. But I have this utter destruction. There is no survivors. He does. He wants all the women killed, all the men killed, all the children killed, all the animals killed. What's the obvious question? No survivors, not even the animals. By the way, if you kill the child, what happens to the child? The child is what? Ultimately saved, isn't he? Well, let's not get into that discussion. Thank you. I see the time. What, what's the obvious question? This utter destruction. Don't let anything survive except for Rahab and her animals and her family. We have to kill everything else. What's the obvious question? Besides why? See, because God did not say that the animals and the children could be assimilated by Israel. Just, just take the animals. I got animals there. Did Israel want those animals? Those are valuable. Those are very valuable. That's food. That's clothing. That's, an, that's products from milk to butter to cheese, whatever you want. Uh, I have working capability with the ox. I have, those are very valuable. We're killing the equivalent of thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of Valuable things. But God said, no, cannot take the animals. And, and Israel would be very tempted to take the animals. But you have to ask, what's wrong with the animals in Jericho? What's wrong with the children? Why is it that Rahab, the harlot, lives and everyone else has to be killed? 
Okay, got that? Now, very quickly, let's go to Joshua 2, which is the companion to Joshua 6. Uh, Joshua 2, 1 through 7. Let me read that. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly. What are they? They are what? Spies. But that's not what he calls them in Joshua 6. Now they're spies. Joshua 6, they're messengers. That is not an accident. Go view the land, especially Jericho. We gotta, we're we're going to... Jericho's particularly important. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, my goodness, you see, behold, something amazing is going to come next. Always remember that. Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you. Does that kind of remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah a little bit? Where Lot was hiding too? So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house for you, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Why is that detailed there all the time? As soon as they went out, they shut the gate. Let's just shut the gate stuff. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt and when you did, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Shehan and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of heaven above and on earth beneath. Okay, so he sends two spies, right? Why two? Last time we sent spies, how many did we send? Twelve. Who were part of the twelve? Joshua's part of the twelve. Who's with him? Caleb. They're the only two that didn't die in the wilderness because they came back and said, we believe God. But he only sends two. And he says, especially Jericho. So what's the obvious question there? What's so special about Jericho? We got something special going on in Jericho. What is it? And this behold. Because that's really interesting. I got a prostitute, a harlot. She's got two men in there. Who knows about it? The king of Jericho. How big is the city? Big city. Lots of people. Strong military force. I got a harlot. She's got two men at her house. And the king says, bring out the two men. Why 
does he ask her to do that? By the way, how did he know she had him? How big a city I got? Well, let's just talk about it. You know, I mean, we could have anywhere from, I would say, five to twenty-five to 50,000 people in this city. Wasilla. Two guys show up. King knows they're there. How do you know? How many people come to Jericho a day? Thousand? Two thousand? He knows two guys came from Israel. How does he know? Photo ID? Face recognition technology? They must have what? They must look different. They don't look the same as the other people. Some's odd. Somehow, they're identifiable. And he knows they're there. He not only knows they're there, he knows where they are. Now, what's the obvious question? Why doesn't he what? Why doesn't he just go get them? But he doesn't. He asks the harlot lady, bring them out. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> We're hiding two guys in the church that just robbed the liquor store down the street. And no, on the internet, we don't have a church next to a liquor store. So it might be a good idea. Anyway, we got two guys in here, run in here, and they hide amongst us. It would be really obvious, very fast, that two guys are in here. Do you think APD would ask us to bring them out? No. They'd come in and get them. Tell us to duck. That's how it would work. The king says, bring the two men out, lady. And she what? She lies to him. And he does what? He believes her. <laughs> That's astonishing. Who is this woman? Why does he believe her? Why doesn't he go after the guys? How is it that he knows they're there? Why didn't he just seize them? And I have this shutting of the gate thing. And then I have this agreement that she makes with these two messengers. Rahab knows. She rattles all this stuff off. She says, look, I." she hasn't seen anything, but she knows that, that the God of Israel is the God of creation, and, and she's only heard it. People have told her what happened at the Red Sea. They have told her what happened at the Jordan. They have told her what happened in the previous battles. They told her all of this stuff, and she said, listen, the whole city is so afraid of you guys. That helps you on the king right there. Huh? Everybody, excuse me, is afraid. There's a terror. There's a sense of doom, a faint-heartedness, a melting, if you will, of the heart. And Rahab is certain that the God of Israel is the God of creation, and so she's going to make a deal. I'm going to hide you from the king and I want a deal. What's my deal? When you come here and kill everybody in the city, because you're going to have to kill everybody in the city because there's something going on here. You have to kill us all. I got it. 
don't kill me or anybody in my house. I'm going to make you a deal. And they take the deal. She wants a true token, she says. Down here in verse... Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. I want a true token. And I want you to spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. She's absolutely convinced that Jericho will be utterly destroyed. How does she know that? She wants her group, and they're all going to come into the house, and none of them are going to be killed. That's my deal. She wants that true token, deliverance from death. And it says she begs for it. I beg you for deliverance from death. What's she after? Salvation, isn't she? And I want a token, a true token. The question becomes, why is it that it's only Rahab? And her family. And by the way, it doesn't talk about her. She's the one that gets her whole family in there. She's the prime mover. Of all the people in Jericho, it's Rahab. And by the way, she is in, I shouldn't keep using that phrase, because uh, I get beat up on the internet. Rahab is in the messianic line. She's a very important lady. Why only Rahab? Why didn't the king of Je- You're all completely frightened out of your mind. You're under tremendous terror. Why don't you all beg for forgiveness, beg for deliverance, beg for salvation, and surrender? Did anybody else do that, by the way? Yes, the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites surrendered. They were very smart. We love the Gibeonites. Gibeonites and Rahab the harlot, they got the message. What's the message? From the messengers. What did the messengers say? What exactly did they say? And by the way, what was the true token? I said, by the way, again. What's the true token? True token. For those who say that I never answer any questions. The true token that you will not be killed was the crimson worm. Crimson Crimson worm. Wait a minute, I thought it was the scarlet cord. Same thing. Scarlet cord, crimson, crimson worm. Same thing. So I did, I answered one question. Do you know what the message was? I'll answer another. Utter destruction is coming. She got the message. So the Gibeonites. They arranged to get the true token, which was the worm of Jonah and the worm of Psalm 22. Same thing here. Let's rise. Be dismissed. Next week we'll answer one more question. I promise. Here we go.